0: Well, welcome, everybody. How how you doing this morning? Yeah, is everybody kind of yawny a little bit, kind of November-y, sort of that transition from the end of October into early November? It's dark all the time and, and things like that. Well, welcome to Evergreen. I'm, I'm uh, Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege to be able to share from God's Word with you this morning. And so I'm really excited about that. We're working through this series that we've titled Love Is. Now, it's a really common subject in the church, right? We always say we need to be loving, we need to love more, we need to love, 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 right? God is love, all of that kind of stuff. But what we're actually looking at is how Scripture describes the, the Christian life. Like essentially, what is the marker, according to the Bible, uh, so to speak, of what God calls us to be in a world that is broken and full of evil, right? That's our context. We are living in a world that's broken. That's a Genesis 3 reality, right? It's a broken world that's full of sin, even in the church. When when someone asks me to describe the the Christian life, what, what should a Christian look like? What is the Christian life? You can actually narrow it down into a very simple explanation. One word, love. We're people, according to Scripture, who show the world God's love. We're to be people who have received the loving forgiveness and grace that the cross provides for us, and we're people that place love before all things. That's essentially what Scripture teaches about what a Christian looks like, what kind of people are God's people. Why? Why are we those sort of people? Because that's what Scripture says, right? Do we always live Scripture? Do we always listen to Scripture? Do we we use a Genesis 3 approach to Scripture where we're misinterpreting and misrepresenting Jesus in our world today? When Jesus was asked... What is the greatest commandment of all? What is the centerpiece of the Christian faith? What is it that we are supposed to be doing as Christians? Essentially, they're asking Jesus, how do you describe someone who follows you? And his answer is found in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. Again, a really overused passage that we tend to just graze by and not pay a whole lot of attention to. So they said, teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? That's their context. And Jesus replied, you must love who? God. You must love the Lord your God, but but not this like emotional sort of fluffy kind of love that we would articulate love as in our culture. He says that you are to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment because nothing else can happen until that baseline has been put in place. Then he says, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. It seems rather simple, doesn't it? Right? It seems rather simple. I mean, Jesus is really just narrowing it down to, listen, if you love God, that love will then pour out to others. In other words, love people the way that you love God. Love people the way that God loves you. And our love flows out of us because of the radical, forgiving love that we receive from Jesus Christ. I I talked about this last week, didn't I, of where love actually flows from. It's not something that you can work harder at. It's not something that you can say, I'm gonna try to be more loving. I'm gonna try to be more patient. I'm gonna try to be more kind. It's something that is directly connected to your connection with you and God. Where are you at with Jesus will determine how you're loving because it flows from you receiving that grace and that love from God, and it flows out from you. The apostle John, he explains it like this in 1 John chapter 4, verses seven to 10. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. It's not something that's manufactured by us. It comes from God. And so he says, anyone who who loves is a child of God and knows God. So there's that connection. Anyone that's connected to God, that knows God, that is expressing that knowing God in love is a child of God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Folks, there is a reality. You can profess that you know God, but not know God at all, and the evidence of where that's at is how you love. That's what scripture's saying. And it's not like a to-do list. It's not like a work harder at it. It's actually where you're at with Jesus in your relationship with Christ. Are you living in his presence? Are you close to him or is God distant? So so he says God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son so the into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This, he says, is real love. He's defining what love actually is, and it's sacrificial in nature. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So folks, John is pointing out that our love for each other flows from the love that we receive from God. God, through Jesus Christ. It's sacrificial. It's what real love looks like. It means we have to sacrifice our own agendas. We have to sacrifice our our own self-centeredness in order to actually live love. It's interesting because often we even make our faith self-centered At times, like what can God do for me? What do I receive from God instead of asking God, what can I do for you? In the passage that we're basing this series on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul gives us a list of what love looks like and what it looks like being lived out. essentially attributes of love. But I want to read our passage again. I know the kids read it on video, but they read it from the New International Version. I want to read our passage today uh, from The Message. Anybody ever heard of The Message? So The Message is not an actual Bible translation. The the Message is a paraphrase of the Bible. But Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, is is a brilliant brilliant, uh, uh, language scholar, and he does a wonderful job at at uh, capturing the beauty of the actual Greek and Hebrew languages. Uh, And so listen to how he uh, interprets this passage. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate, right? Like the gong, something super annoying, right? Right? Uh, although WD 40 might fix that, I'm not sure WD 40 would fix us. But anyway, if I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making every plan, uh, making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I, but I don't have love, I'm nothing if I give everything, hear this, folks, if I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, no matter what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. And then that love is patient, he interprets it as love never gives up. And then that love is kind, he interprets as love cares more for others than for self. Now, we're going to be dealing with kindness uh, a little bit later in this message. That's where we're going to stop in this passage. But I also want to redirect you a little bit down to uh, chapter 14, the first verse uh, that he says right after this love section. Listen to what he says. Go after a life of love as if your life depended on it, because it does. So he gives us all these attributes of love, and he says that God is love, that God never, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. And he says, this is exactly what you should be going after in life. Because your life depends on it. That's interesting. How many people in the room today, if I said, what do you think your life depends on, would have answered me back with love? Probably most of us would have said things like money or things like food or water or air or or something like that, right? But see, scripture sees that as like, those are things that God provides for you and we just live in trust that we will have those things as needed, right? But the love that we should be seeking after that, that actually is the everything in our life is it directly connected to where we're at in our relationship with God. So it's not about food, water, or those basic needs. He's saying God provides those Love is something God also provides for you, but it's something we tend to neglect. It's something we tend to not seek. We tend to seek all the control over all those other things instead of actually just being loving. Yet scripture says that our our life depends on love more than anything in order to live in true. I want you to hear this. Biblical freedom, not the freedom we hear about today. That's constitutional freedom. That's nothing to do with the Bible. Biblical freedom is very different. And biblical freedom can only be received when you receive God's love and allow that love to flow through us into our relationships. Because when you experience that love and you share that love, you are free. Our Christian lives. Depend on it. And, and Jesus says that this is really important. In John's gospel, John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That, that, I read that passage last week. In so many ways, the church has taught things so different, hasn't it? The church has said, your doctrine, your right doctrine, if you believe these right things, then people will know that you're the right kind of disciple. Like we infight about that, don't we? Right, the different churches around town and who believes what and what those people believe, is it right, is it wrong, is it da-da-da-da-da, we spent all of our time on that in a non-loving way, and yet scripture says that's not how people will know you at all. And statistically, the Christian church is becoming drastically smaller, especially after COVID. I think COVID was a little bit of a weeding out process of who's really in compared to who really is kind of lethargic in their faith. And we're struggling to even like get along and be loving with one another. And so if your love for one another is what proves to the world that you're followers of Jesus Christ. How are we doing with love? Some churches will say, oh, that fluffy love stuff. You just need to know the five points of Calvinism, or you just need to be against women in ministry, or you need to be this, or you need to be... That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says they'll know you by how you love one another. It's our love that will show the world that we are different. That's the distinct difference. Not, oh, I don't drink and they drink. Or I don't smoke and they smoke. That's not the di- Those are ethical things that are created out of your relationship with Jesus. They're not your markers of the Christian faith. The Bible's super clear, folks, that the marker of the Christian faith is how we love one another. How we serve Jesus. How we love Jesus. Do we live in his presence, or do we live under our own control and our own self-centeredness, a Genesis 3 world? And it's at this point, folks, that I start to get a little bit frustrated. As I look as a pastor across the Christian church, uh, I just don't see this kind of love that Scripture is presenting. Sometimes I see glimmers of it, I see hope, I see glimmers of it, yet it seems like we fight for our own opinions and wants more than we seem to live sacrificially in love. All of us are guilty of it. None of us are free from this. And it's interesting, because if we look at, the, at church history, which is something that I've spent a lot of time studying, history can teach us an awful lot, and it can show us patterns. And I see the Christian church in 2021 living through the same patterns that the Israelites live, that the prophets are calling us out of, and we're cycling through the same types of religiosity. And when we look at church history, it's actually saturated with violence and hate instead of love. The church has not done a great job at being radical, loving people. It's interesting when you look at the history of the church, you see, the first 300 years of the church was actually radically loving and made peace everywhere that they went. We have actual historical evidence of how the church behaved, how they interacted. So for 300 plus years, they never fought back against persecution. They just received it. It was what it was. It was just part of their lives. They met in home churches and they cared for one another. They lived their lives in the margins of society. They cared for the poor and the oppressed. Even in the midst of persecution, they chose to live their lives this way. Think about that. The first 300 years of the church was riddled with death and sacrifice. Christians losing their lives because of their faith. But none of the death and sacrifice, none of the death was the people of God. It was always others projecting hate onto them. Those who showed patience and kindness toward others. See, the world doesn't love patience and kindness. When you study the church historically, you'll quickly also see a very distinct change that happens. And, and moving from persecuted people who lived in the margins of society, loving one another and those in need, it, it's so, there's something that happens historically that changes the trajectory of the church, and we are living in the result of that change of direction. And we start to call it a historically correct view of church, but it's actually far from it. In 312 AD, long, long time ago, right? We're in 2021. In 312, persecution ended. Persecution ended and Christianity was legalized. Christians would no longer be killed for how they lived and what they believed. Now, how many people think that that is a good thing? That that's amazing? Christians will no longer be killed for what they believe. We now have religious freedom, and this is good. Most Christians say, yeah, that's a a good thing. In 381 AD, Christianity actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire because of the conversion of a Roman emperor named Constantine. Again, awesome, right? So not only are we not persecuted, But we're the official religion, we're now it. Everybody's gotta pray in school. Everybody's gotta do Christianity. This is Christian freedom, this is amazing, right? All in order to express our faith in God, we want this freedom. We need people to recognize and honor what we believe through laws and politics, right? History tells us something very interesting. Did you know that in 381, so for 381 years, the church had never taken part in any form of violence or killing. They lived quiet lives in the margins, meeting together in homes, and caring for one another uh, and those in need. They were actually famous for their social programs that cared for the marginalized and broken people. Did you know that historically, one week after Christianity was declared the official religion of the Roman Empire, the church put a person to death for the first time in history? Our way of love disappeared, and we started to live in the way of power instead of peace and kindness. Now, I say all of this to point something out to you. We struggle as Christians with living the way of love as described in in scripture because we've been corrupted by evil and lies and we continue to live in evil and lies by seeking power. If you study Christian history, the minute the church is given power, they misuse it, they abuse it. The oppressed become the oppressors. It's interesting, isn't it? Yet Jesus taught us and showed us and modeled for us how to give up power, to give it away. For 300 years, Christians were powerless. In 381 AD, the church changed its posture. Instead of living in the margins and being known for their loving kindness, Now the people of God started living life with the perpetual thought of what is in it for me. What do I get from this? That's what power does. It steals our ability to be truly kind. And kindness is one of the attributes of love. That's the attribute that I want to talk about quickly this morning. Kindness is the second attribute that Paul lists in this passage in 1 Corinthians. So it's interesting, right? The things we see as good historically have actually trajectory that changed the trajectory of the Christian church by far for the negative. We're not persecuted. We're allowed to have freedom of religion, but we're not nice people anymore. We're not known for our social programs. We're not known for our kindness and our love. We're known for arguing about doctrine, for omitting people from the life of the church. This is just a fact, folks. This isn't me being hard on the church. This is a historical fact. The only way that the church today can overcome evil and become like Jesus is to be transformed into people who are kind. Now, a lot of people go, well, I'm kind, like I speak nicely to people. That's not actually the way the Bible looks at kindness. The way the Bible looks at kindness is where it is flowing from. So I can hold the door for somebody, I can speak kindly to somebody, but in my heart, if I'm like calling them an idiot, but I'm being kind, I'm actually not being kind. You you catch it? God's not looking at your outer appearance. He's looking at your inner appearance, your inner thoughts, the way that you think about people. And kindness counts. As we learn to be patient and kind, we begin to think of others differently out of this transformation that happens. Just like Peterson translates the passage, love is kind, I love how he does it. Kindness to him is love cares more for others than for self. You see, this is the key to biblical kindness, and we lost it thousands of years ago. Now we define kindness through acts of service or a nice tone. The kindness as described by Paul is going out of your way to benefit another without a thought of what is coming back to you. This doesn't mean that you let others walk all over you. It doesn't mean that you never consider what is good for you. It means that we go out of our way As those who love Jesus and put him at the center of our lives, we go out of our way to make sure that other human beings around us know their worth in Jesus, know their worth that Jesus has for them, and we treat them according to that worth. In other words, like Peterson said about love, we go after a life of love as if our lives depend on it because It does. We go after a life of kindness because our life depends on it. That's how important, folks, this passage that we often ignore but read at weddings actually is to the life of the church, to framing yourself as a Christian. We don't live in kindness because we're trying to earn something in return. That's not even part of the thought pattern of kindness. We're driven by God's love to chase after kindness, to put others first even when we get nothing in return. Our motives are everything, where this kindness flows from, and God knows exactly where our kindness is coming from, what our motive is. So in order to live the kind of kindness that Paul is talking about here, it has to flow from a heart that has no agenda. It it, it, it has to flow from a heart that has no need to be needed. Just simply out of a love for God and receiving the unsurpassable love of God in our own lives. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed is a really interesting miracle. It's actually really profound, Uh, and and it's it's this kindness that Jesus shows in that passage. When Jesus turns water into wine, we often overlook the simplicity of what's happening in this miracle. Actually, denominationally, different denominations argue about this passage because it's got alcohol attached to it, and so everybody gets all freaky-deaky about that. Uh, First of all, the Greek says it's fermented wine. So those who think that we're having a big party with with Welch's grape juice and purple lips, uh, that's not actually the reality in this passage. Uh, And people, believe it or not, we argue, churches have split over this kind of issues, right? Like, did Welch's exist? Is that the holy juice or not? Over this simple passage, that's actually trying to show us something very profoundly simple, and it's interesting because scholars have been perplexed over this for years. They've tried to explain this, like the jars represent this and the water represents it. What a bunch of garbage. Like just people with big brains that have nothing better to do, I guess. Like here's what's actually happening in this passage. It's very, very simple. Jesus is simply being kind. Why? Why? They ran out of wine, which would have been a huge embarrassment for the hosts. So instead of Jesus seeing the host experience this embarrassment and this ridicule, he performs his first miracle. And it's just a kind act that doesn't benefit him at all, but it helps someone else out that's in need. He helps them by fixing their problem. It's really that simple. The first miracle recorded in the New Testament by Jesus is really just simply showing an act of kindness because Jesus recognizes that someone is in need. Kindness is always others-centered and never self-centered. It's never done to receive praise. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Think about this. Don't we often love to like post pictures of our good deeds on Facebook? Look at what we're doing in the community. Isn't this amazing? Like, Look at the accolades we deserve because of what we're doing. You should probably give money to our organization. And we don't trust God will provide we begin to take a hold of that and we prop people up as projects instead of simply just being kind and loving in the background. And so scripture says, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Because that's actually not kindness. It's self-centeredness. Because it becomes about what you get out of it. And God, the passage says, doesn't reward us for it. But notice the reward is in heaven, not here on earth. The reward for kindness, folks, is God's presence. God's presence with you, God living in you. He's distant when you make life all about being noticed or about power and recognition. He's close to you when you just do it out of a loving heart. Where the recognition, the being noticed just doesn't matter. It's not easy, is it? It's our human disposition to want something out of something, isn't it? We're all, that's normal. That's Genesis 3. That's evil in our lives. This is why this can only be lived through the overflowing grace of God. We can't do it without Jesus being close. When Jesus is distant, we make it about ourselves. Let's read a couple more passages very quickly. Luke chapter six, verse 35. This is radical. You've heard this from me a lot. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Wow, right? That's gotta come from God. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. It's like when I lend money to my brother, right? <laughs> then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty-two. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven. You. Do you see it? How we treat others matters. Jesus calls us to love our enemies, expecting nothing in return. We're loving our enemies and not even expecting them to change. He wants us to be tender hearted and forgiving instead of bitter and angry. We're to forgive others just as Christ forgave us. How on earth do we live this kind of radical kindness in a world that has taught us to be all about what we can get out of everything? It's really simple. We have to be transformed by God's love. See, the Christian faith is not just about saying you have faith. It's actually about allowing God into your heart to transform you to change you from the inside out. thats what I talked about last week. The only way to overcome self and our tendency to think about self is to open our lives and hearts up to God's transforming love. Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, when we profess Christ, right? We're saying we wanna be your follower. This is what we must do. You must give up your own way. Ooh, think about that, right? Like we like our way, right? The way I think things should be done is the way that things should be done because I like my way. In order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the first thing you have to do is give up your way and take up your cross, sacrifice, and follow his ways. Give up your own way, take up your cross and follow the ways of Jesus. Be formed into the likeness of Christ. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. My old self has been crucified. My old self, the one that thought about me, the one that wants his way, it's dead. It's been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. We give up our whole lives is what Paul's saying, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body. Listen to it. This is really profound, folks. So I live in this earthly body by doing what? Controlling every narrative? Or trusting in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In order to live a life of kindness, empowered by Jesus, we must learn to die to self to be crucified is the way Paul puts it, to live life with Christ in us and to trust our lives and the mess of this world to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. God showed us kindness through the cross and he calls us to die to our old ways and become new. In scripture, it's called being born again, living a life of sacrificial love with Jesus at the center. So as we chase after a life of love, let's do it like our life depends on it, because it does. Folks, we need a sense of urgency in our relationship with God because he shows us how to love and our lives depend on it. The church is lacking Urgency, especially in the midst of this COVID stuff. And because of our lack of urgency, we're lacking love. So I'm asking you, make Jesus the center of your life. Make this an urgent matter. Learn to trust in him. He's God, right? Like the creator of the heavens and earth. Like think about think about how much we mistrust the one who created all things. Like the most powerful God and we're like, I don't know if he's got this. We need a sense of urgency in our relationship with God because that sense of urgency will draw us into his loving presence. And then love, patience, and kindness will begin to flow from our hearts and the world will distinctly see a difference.